Okay, well, I'm excited about what we're going to be talking about tonight as we continue our look at uh, why Bible prophecy matters now more than ever. And I know we're picking up new uh, listeners and uh, viewers each uh, week, so let me just quickly run through what we've done so far. This is our ninth installment in this series. We started out uh, spending uh, several weeks actually talking about how the stage is being set prophetically. Then we got into how the stage is being set geologically and atmospherically. And then uh, we talked about how the stage is being set economically. And then uh, last week we started a new uh, section, uh, kind of the fifth part in this uh, study. Uh, and that is how the stage is being set ecclesiastically. So we talked about how the Bible tells us in the latter times there will be a great apostasy, a falling away from the faith, a departure from sound doctrine. For example, 1 Peter 4 Verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. Uh, in the book of Revelation, in con connection with the sixth bowl judgment, uh, we find out that uh, three unclean spirits that uh, John describes here as being like frogs uh, are actually spirits of demons uh, that are going to play a key role uh, as, all, as will all of the spiritual beings and, and uh, uh, evil beings uh, connected with Satan's re regime and that lead up to the return of Christ. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Uh, he had said earlier that, in the last days, perilous times will come. So sadly, the church today seems to be asleep at the wheel. We are becoming more and more like the world and less and less doing what God's word tells us to, to do. As uh, shining, We're supposed to be shining like stars in this wicked and perverse generation. So we kicked this uh, section off last week by looking at uh, a couple of manifestations of this apostasy that I believe indicate we're getting closer and closer to uh, the rapture. One of those was the attacks on the Word of God. And we gave several examples of that in several scriptures that talk about how this is going to get worse. And then we looked at the, the growing acceptance of pluralism. And we're going to kind of build on that a little bit more uh, tonight with the first two uh, points that I want to make uh, tonight. And the first of those is moral relativism. Moral relativism is absolutely on the rise, and I believe it's an indication that we're really, uh, that the church age is running its course, that fewer and fewer people believe in moral absolutes. Moral relativism is the, the belief that values are determined by each society and culture. There are no universal moral laws. What is morally right in one context might be morally wrong in another. In other words, there's no grand meta narrative that is true for all people at all times. And and that's why it's so important, and I started with last week the attacks on the Word of God. It's so important to stand on the Word of God because it tells us the story. It tells us everything we need for life and godliness. It tells us what God wants and us to know and what we need to know. And it explains indeed that you know every human being on earth descended from Adam and Eve, that God spoke the world into existence in six literal 24-hour days 6,000 years ago. Uh, but over time... Uh, as uh, liberalism and the abandonment of God's word has uh, kind of gotten a foothold within the church, uh, not just in America, but at large, we've seen more and more religious organizations, Christian religious organizations, abandon that grand meta-narrative. And so now you have all kinds of 
you know, concepts out there about where we came from. You got the integrationist concept of evolution and, and merging that into scripture and so forth. But uh, anything that is true for all people at all times is absolute. And moral relativism, kind of like what we talked about last week with the postmodern mindset of pluralism, uh, is rejected. Uh, and really a lot of people, and I think rightly so, uh, bring this back to Friedrich Nietzsche from the 19th and uh, you know, century. He was an atheistic German philosopher. I, I uh, refer to him a lot because he had such a profound influence on Western thought. Uh, but he said, you have your way, I have my way. As for the right way, it does not exist. And uh, he's also famous, of course, for that famous statement that he made repeatedly in various writings called, uh, where he said, God is dead. God is dead. And, and, and you know, uh, this, what you see on the screen sounds like someone who believes God is dead would say, you know, something that they would say. Um, so uh, as we think about moral relativism and see how it's on uh, the rise today, I want to begin by uh, providing a few citations from two of my favorite theologians that I just think are outstanding, Calvin and Hobbes. And so uh, Calvin, of course, is the precocious and mischievous six-year-old and his stuffed tiger, Hobbes. But I love this cartoon. Um, uh, here is uh, Hobbes, or Calvin rather, saying to Hobbes, I don't believe in ethics anymore. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means. Get what you can while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to. Let others argue about whether it's right or wrong. And then Hobbes gives him a swift push in the back, knocks him down into the mud. And uh, uh, Calvin says, why'd you do that? Hobbes says, well, you were in my way, and now you're not. <laughs> the ends justify the means. And uh, uh, Hobbes says, or Calvin says, I, don't, I didn't mean everyone, you dolt, just me. <laughs> ah, I see. See, that's really the problem with moral relativism, isn't it? Is that uh, it makes absolute truth in the eye of the beholder. Here's another one. Uh, how are you doing on your New Year's re resolutions? Calvin says, I didn't make any. You see, in order to improve oneself, one must have some idea of what's good, and that implies certain values. But as we all know, values are relative. Every system of belief is equally valid, and we need to tolerate diversity. Virtue isn't better than vice, it's just different. Uh, and so Hobbes says, well, I don't know if I can tolerate that much tolerance. And Calvin says, I refuse to be victimized by notions of virtuous behavior. I mean, it really is an upside-down uh, world. Um, in this great last days of deception, the evidence that the spirit of Antichrist is already at work gets stronger and stronger. Uh, moral relativism, it's incoherent, it's illogical. Uh, you know, you, we've all heard the statement, you know, this guy says, there's no absolute truth. Is that absolutely true? Absolutely, right? The statement, there is no absolute truth, is in, of its, is in and of itself an absolute uh, statement. So back in 2017, Time Magazine uh, started down this road by asking the question, is truth dead? And remember, if you've read my Spirit of the Antichrist books, you know that the mainstream media is completely controlled. It's part of the propaganda machine. They try to kind of get things into the mainstream thought and processes and, and mindset uh, uh, through these types of articles. Um, 
But, you know, as far as how that affects the church, sadly, many believers today have adopted a moral uh, relativism. They, 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 whether they realize it or not, they're impugning the credibility and the authority of God's word. And so, as we talked about last week, they'll say things like the ideas of Scripture are true, the concepts, it's got some good ideas, but it's not absolute, it's not infallible, it's not inerrant, right? Um, and by the way, the further we've slipped away from uh, this concept of a grand meta narrative and absolute truth for everyone at all times, the more we've had to create new terms. You know, it, it used to be enough to say the Bible was inspired. Well, then they twisted those words and meanings. We had to clarify, well, by that we mean it's infallible. And then they twisted those, and then we had to come up with, now it's inerrant, meaning it, cannot, it does not contain any errors, factual, scientific, or otherwise. Um, so this has been a battle that's been raging, again, like many of them, really since the turn of the 20th century. Obviously, from a spiritual perspective, it's been waging a lot longer than that. Really, Satan's been attacking the truth for, for 6,000 years. But uh, it's really in America, and especially in the American church, uh, been a con concerted effort um, uh, you know, for the last uh, 100 years or 120 years. I showed a quote last night um, from uh, Barry Goldwater uh, that, uh, you know, how he talks about the four institutions that they're trying to attack. Well, one of those is the church, right? So I really believe, as this uh, tweet uh, says, if Paul saw the church, actually it's a Facebook post, if Paul saw the church in America, we'd be getting a letter. And it would probably be more like 1 Corinthians or one of those where it's just really picking us uh, apart for, for the job that we are doing or not doing. And we're going to have more to say about that as we go through these other manifestations of apostasy. Probably won't get to it tonight, but one of the ones I'm going to talk about is the, uh, the, the profound unwillingness of people to speak out against sin. It's just a major problem, and yet that's what the Bible tells us to do. So it reminds me of the last verse in the Old Testament book of Judges. Book of Judges covers about 300 years of Israel's history from roughly the death of Joshua in 1366 B.C. all the way until the death of Samson in uh, 1084 B.C. And, and, and this verse really summarizes the whole period of the judges in Israel. Uh, you know, God capitulated to the selfish desires of the Israelites. He said, okay, you want judges? I'll give you judges. Uh, but this verse kind of tells us where that led it's a fitting concluding statement that explains why life in Israel was so corrupt and immoral and in decline. It all began with individuals ignoring the law of God, doing what was right in their own eyes, and it led to the moral collapse of the nation. Sound familiar? That's where we're headed today. Uh, I was talking to someone recently about the state of affairs in the United States military, and I don't know how many of you realize this? That, you know, we, we kind of understand it intellectually because it is in the news. And if you follow conservative, you know, news stations, they, they tend to you know, point this out. Of course, that's all controlled opposition. But still, at least it's out there. We understand it. And that is that uh, the, you know, U.S. military has been taken over by the LGBTQ woke agenda. Um, and the person I was talking to, I, I said, now, is Russia and China, are they letting cross-dressers and homosexuals and people like that just blatantly serve in their military? Absolutely not. So this is by design. It's by design to bring down this country. It's a multi-pronged attack. Don't ever forget that. Just They're very patient, and just as, as I've talked about previously in the 
early days of the 1900s, they targeted you know, the finance industry, the education industry, the medical industry, big business and agriculture and all of that. Uh, they are still kind of working out their plan and they're coming at it from a variety uh, of ways. Um, so uh, Proverbs 29:18 says, where there is no revelation, the word revelation there means prophetic utterance or uh, you know, prophetic statement of God, absolute truth is the idea there. Uh, the people cast off restraint. Some translations say, where there is no vision, the people perish. The idea there, vision, is a prophetic statement. So, you know, God at this time, you know, roughly a thousand years before Christ, uh, was, uh, you know, uh, speaking through prophets, through his human mediaries, right? And they were his representatives to tell the truth of God. Today we've got the entire truth of God contained in his special revelation, the written word of God. But at that time, what he was saying is, if you didn't have my word through the prophets, the visions, the revelation, then the people would have no restraint. So the word of God as a standard provides restraint. I mean, the easiest analogy I can think of is imagine how chaotic it would be uh, in our you know, road system here if there were no stop signs, no traffic lights, no speed limits, no yield signs, no directions whatsoever, no lines down the middle of the road. I mean, it would be chaotic. There's a, a, a turn that we often make uh, between our house and, and going to town that uh, the, the lines are, uh, it's a strange intersection, but the lines are all faded, and then right now there's a bunch of dirt and sand that's blown over, and you can't really turn. Every time I make that turn, I'm confused as to which lane do I get in, and more than once I've gone into the head-on lane. Thankfully, no cars were coming, but it's just really difficult to see where I'm supposed to turn. Um, and that's because there's not a clear signal. There's not a clear line, right? And that's what this verse in Proverbs is saying. Without revelation, the Word of God, there's nothing to restrain. There's no standard. It's chaos. But in the second part of this couplet here, it's, it's uh, uh, antithetical parallelism here. This, the second part of the verse uh, repeats the same principle, but in the opposite way. He says, but happy is he who keeps the law. See, if we, if we know the law, we keep the law, we follow the law, it's going to go well. Uh, and as we think about the end times, Daniel tells us that the Antichrist someday is going to be the, the you know, quintessential example of one of these who does, know, you know, does what's right in his own eyes. The king shall do according to his own will. And, and he's not going to be restrained uh, by anyone. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2 that right now the church is a restraining influence on the world through the presence of the Holy Spirit working in and through believers. And when the church is raptured, that restraining influence of the Holy Spirit will be gone. Now, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's gone. A lot of times you'll, you'll hear people mistakenly describe it that way, that you know the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's going to be taken out of the way as if God could somehow not be in a certain place. Like, you know, God, the world is off limits to the God, the Holy Spirit. But God is omnipresent. God is, you know, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are everywhere present at all times. There's no place the Holy Spirit cannot be. But what is going to be removed is His influence, the Holy Spirit's, through the church. Because as bad as the church is, as we're talking about with this uh, last day's apostasy, there are still God-fearing, Bible-believing men and women, believers, who, who walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh, that do their best to, to live a moral, ethical life. 
And that, that's good because I can only imagine what it was like and what it's going to be like without that. And so it's just all setting the stage for the, the reign and the rise of the Antichrist here. Um, and uh, here's the same uh, passage that I just quoted a moment ago about the restrainer. He says, the coming of the lawless one, and that's Satan. I mean, that's the Antichrist. Notice what he's called here. The lawless one. Several names for the Antichrist in Scripture. The Antichrist, the son of perdition, the man of sin, the lawless one, the beast, uh, and so forth. Uh, but here he's called the lawless one. That's what you have to be called if you have no standard. If you hold to moral relativity, then you are lawless. You are lawless. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I, uh, even though I resonate with a lot of the libertarian uh, principles, and back when I you know, thought my vote counted, and, and, and actually before the digital voting systems came, digital tabulation systems came into play, I actually flirted with voting libertarian a time or two. I had, you know, some of them were kind of my uh, heroes and uh, ended up being more of a constitutional party guy. Uh, but, uh, you know, the reason I can't go all in with the libertarians is because they, they believe there are no moral absolutes. You know, if you want, I mean, for the most part, if you want to, you know, abuse your body and take drugs and all that, you should have that right, and the government shouldn't interfere. So, uh, you know, we agree on a lot of stuff, but we, would, we believe there is a standard, and there is a moral absolute. We are not moral relativists. And by the way, not all libertarians are moral relativists. Going back to Daniel, this is the NASB. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor he, will he show regard for any other god. The Antichrist is not going to follow any one religion or any one moral code. Instead, he's going to embrace all gods at first and then ultimately set himself up as God and demand that the whole world worship him alone. In Revelation 13, we read that they worshiped the dragon, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast. Uh, who is like the beast, they said? Who is able to make war with him? Uh, the supernatural character of the beast makes him the object of worship along with Satan. He's going to do signs and wonders. He's going to do things to uh, you know, indicate that he has power. Now, it's all fake. He's an imposter, and the final form of this counterfeit religion uh, will be when he assumes the place of God and demands that everyone uh, worship uh, him. Uh, and then going on, he says, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. So this is at the midpoint of the tribulation. So for the last three and a half years, this is going to continue. He's going to set his sights on Israel. He's going to start persecuting uh, the Jews. And of course, he's already been persecuting Christians by this point, three and a half years in. He opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. You see multiple times this reference to blaspheme, blasphemies and blasphemy. Um, he's going to offend followers of all religions with his pluralistic worldview. Uh, he's going to say there's no one right way. Moral relativism makes room for all religions. Uh, and uh, it's this can't we all just uh, get along like we talked about uh, last week. Uh, during Antichrist's reign of terror, he will embrace them at first, say you're welcome under the tent, but then he's going to collapse the tent on top of them, and he's going to be the only one left standing, and you got to go, it's his way uh, or the highway. Um, and, of course, ultimately, he's going to set his blasphemous tongue against the one true God. 
and it'll it'll all climax in this final battle at Armageddon when Christ comes back with a sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth. So, uh, you know, moral relativism, which kind of goes hand in, in hand with uh, pluralism, like we talked about last week, is absolutely on the rise, no pun intended. We're seeing it everywhere, uh, and it's really the prevailing mindset of most people today. Whether they can articulate or not, whether they know it's called moral relativism or pluralism, whether they know the terminology, most people today have been impacted by this concept that there is nothing that is true for all people at all times. Um, a lot of people thought, uh, a lot of theologians and philosophers, uh, I can remember talking about this, I was in academics at the time 9-11 happened, and a lot of people even on mainstream news media like Fox News and stuff were talking about how they really thought 9-11 was going to potentially be the death of postmodernism and finally shake everybody back to uh, the reality that there are absolutes because you had even the most liberal pundits and commentators out there referring to the terrorists as evil, you know, these evil, wicked people. And by the way, there were real terrorists, even though the official story is completely scientifically impossible. There was absolutely real terrorists on those planes, and they really did want to harm our country. And so they would say things like, you know, uh, these, these people are evil, these people are wicked, and, and, and they were using those types of terms. Uh, but, of course, hopes that postmodernism would be, you know, die were, were way overstated. Um, I think it was, who was it, Mark Twain, rumors of my death or exaggerated or something like that. And that's what happened with postmodernism. It, it's only gotten worse uh, since then. So then the fourth <laughs> manifestation of apostasy in the church, and this is where we're going to spend uh, the bulk of our time tonight, depending on how... Uh, how many rabbits I chase, but that comes from not preaching a, a clear gospel. To me, the gospel is what matters most. It's what the early apostles gave their lives for. It's what we've been talking about on Sundays. Paul was defending uh, again and again in all of his trials was the fact that Christ died for our sins, rose from the dead, and he is the only one who has the authority to forgive sin and give everlasting life. Um, Satan, we know, has set his sights on the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Uh, he wants to blind men's hearts to the gospel. It's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. So if the gospel is not clear, if it's not accurate, uh, it's not going to save. Um, you, know, you have to hear and believe the gospel to be saved. Paul makes that clear in Romans 10. So the further the church gets in its spiritual decline, the more we're going to see a complete uh, obliteration of the gospel. In fact, most churches today are preaching a, a social gospel. And I want to use this discussion that we had last week and a little bit this week about pluralism and moral relativism to kind of explain how this has uh, shown itself in the church as it relates to the gospel. So according to the Bible, the gospel is very clear. The gospel is, first and foremost, uh, information on how a person can be rescued from the penalty of sin and have eternal life. That's what the gospel is. That's what makes it good news. You're lost and on the road to hell. Hell is a literal place of torment for all of eternity. But God loves you so much that he made a way out. And it's nothing you can do to earn it, nothing you can do to get out on your own. You can't scratch and claw your way out of this pit of smuck and mire and sin that you're in. But God loves you enough that he sent his only son to die in your place, pay your penalty. He defeated death, hell, and the grave when he rose again the third day. And now he, if you'll simply trust him and him alone for it, will give you forgiveness. 
And that's the gospel. That's the gospel the Bible teaches. That's the gospel the historic church taught. Uh, it's the gospel that uh, century after century people were proclaiming, and it's the gospel by which we are saved, 1 Corinthians 15. But the more we've drifted into this, you know, slide into an apostate church, we've seen the gospel change. So contemporary Christianity came along and added a very large footnote about increasing your personal happiness and success through God. So the gospel became about how to find meaning and purpose in life, how to live your best life now, how to be happy and healthy and content. It became all focused on this life. In fact, uh, you'll, you'll hear very articulate and in many cases very well-liked and hugely popular evangelical leaders today actually stand up and proclaim from the pulpit that the gospel's not about heaven and hell. The gospel's about here and now. It's about finding peace and finding contentment and finding your purpose, right? And, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of how it shifted. It, it, uh, it went from, and I talk about this in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. I was going to mention that in a moment, but I'll go ahead and bring it up here now. But this was the first book I ever wrote uh, back in 2007. And uh, it, it deals with six, the revised edition, we put out a revised edition several years later with an, an additional chapter, but deals with six false gospel models that have become so prevalent in our uh, culture today. And one of them is this purpose gospel, this idea that, again, the gospel is about how to be happy. And I give examples in there of gospel tracts, uh, you know, uh, put out by otherwise reputable you know, evangelical Christian organizations that back in the day, before postmodernism took over, uh, were pretty accurate. But they would start out with, you know, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And that's the tracks that we use now. You know, I, you know, we don't mince words, you know. Our, our track that we, every single order, by the way, uh, that not by works receives, every single order gets a gospel track in it. And we put a little note in there that says, if you already know the Lord, please pass this along to someone who might not. And uh, it's, it's really one of the core values that we have as, as a ministry. In fact, every letter, too, goes out. We get donations. They all get a donor letter. I'm assuming people that choose to donate to Not By Works Ministries are probably believers. But guess what we put in the envelope? A gospel track. When we go to speak at conferences, we put gospel tracks out with little signs to say, please take as many as you want and give them out. But all of our gospel tracks in different ways, start with the same premise. There is a God, there is a heaven, there is a hell, where are you going? Because it's not about this life, it's about the life then and there. But that gospel track I was mentioning that we talk about in the book eventually evolved and changed, and now the cover of it says, do you need a new best friend in Jesus? And it talks about how he's going to be with you, he's going to walk with you, he's going to talk with you, you're going to, you're going to find him as your you know, great companion in life as you go through life. Now, is it true that Jesus is with you wherever you go as you walk through life? Is it true that he's a, a friend, that there's, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus? All that's absolutely true. But that's not the gospel. That's sanctification. That's discipleship. That's the Christian life, Christian living. That's about, you know, living this life once we get saved until either the Lord calls us home at death or the rapture happens. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in here about that dot on the timeline. But Jesus didn't come to the earth to die a cruel death on the cross so that you'd be happy for 60, 70, 80, 90 years. He came to the earth to die a cruel death on the cross so that you could have eternal life. That's why he came. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So 
they added this first footnote, and that should have been uh, the first indication that something was wrong. And then as time goes on, they add another footnote about character development. The gospel becomes about being better, and it shifted in a dramatic way. This was, you know, late 80s with, with uh, you know, books by John MacArthur and some others that it was all about, you know, surrendering your life and making him, putting him in charge and putting him on the throne of your life. And you'd see these gospel tracts that would come along and they would talk about sin and your need for a Savior and they'd get all that part right. But when it came to, what do I do? Help, I'm lost and on the road to hell. How do I get saved? They say, oh, you just got to surrender to the Lord, put him in charge of your life. And they'd show a picture of a, a person with a heart and a throne in there. And they'd say, right now you're on that throne and you need to jump off and let God take control of your life and make sure you follow him and obey him and do what he tells you to do. Again, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not something we do for God. It's something we receive from God. We can't get saved because we declare, okay, you're in charge now. That's a sanctification issue. That's a discipleship issue. That's what every believer should do every day. You ought to wake up every day and say, Lord, you are my Lord. How can I serve you today? But nobody gets to heaven because they declare their allegiance to God. You get to heaven by declaring your complete helplessness before a holy God, and you come empty-handed, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling, and you receive what Jesus already purchased on your behalf. So it's not about, the gospel is not about a character development. And then they added another footnote about spiritual experience and the whole, you know, mystical spiritual formation movement, Dallas Willard and, you know, some of those folks out there talking about the goosebump mentality. And if you have this sort of spiritual experience, I uh, forget what they call it. Uh, it's been a while since I taught on that in ecclesiology classes, but, you know, where, where it's all about this mystical subjective feeling. And then they eventually added another one about social global transformation. And this gets into the sort of the kingdom now, the new apostolic reformation, uh, the, the uh, theonomic ethics, uh, some, of those, uh, some of those movements, the Pat Robertson group that's just all out there about, you know, we can change the world if we'll just get enough people to jump on the Christian bandwagon, if we just elect enough Christian people to public service, if we just, if we just keep getting more and more Christians to declare their allegiance to God and to Christ, then eventually the world will be good enough and Christ will come back. So this is essentially uh, the social gospel. And, and today it has eclipsed the biblical gospel, which has now morphed into social improvement. So, you know, used to, and I, I talk about this in the book, even way back in 2007, you know, used to, if you wanted to, use a metaphor to describe that something is absolutely true, you know, you'd say things like, well, I swear, or I swear on my mother's grave, or I, I you know, what, but sometimes people would say, it's the gospel truth, right? Because the gospel meant something. Doesn't mean anything anymore. It means whatever people want it to mean. And the gospel is not about social improvement. If people trust in Jesus Christ, become born again by faith, and thereby become a Christian, absolutely that makes the world a better place. But that's not the gospel. That's, there's a difference between the gospel, which Paul clearly outlines in 1 Corinthians 15 and throughout the whole New Testament, uh, and the effects of the gospel. First and foremost, the gospel is about how to have your sins forgiven and spend eternity in heaven. Uh, you know, as Paul says in that same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, if in this life only we have hope, we're of all men most pitiable. So 
it's true that as the Spirit takes up residence and you become born again, you do have a different perspective, a different outlook on life. Hopefully, it is going to make your life happy. Hopefully, you are going to be content. Hopefully, you are going to find purpose in Christ. But you don't get saved by somehow, uh, you know, finding your purpose or happiness in Christ. So let me give you some examples of how we've seen this over the last several decades uh, in play itself out. This, this idea that the gospel has been right in the crosshairs of the devil for all this, uh, these years now, and he's really made great headway the closer we get to the return of Christ. Uh, because it is very difficult uh, to find a church today that preaches a clear, accurate, and urgent gospel message, right? It's just hard. Uh, I, in the book, I talk about, uh, you know, how I separate folks uh, from, you know, being adamantly preaching a false gospel uh, versus those who just are sloppy. They're just a product of their culture. They haven't really thought through the issues. And if you, if you explain to them a biblical soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, they'll begin to go, oh yeah, the light bulb goes off and they begin to fine tune it. And I've seen that for years. I mean, this is, this, the reason this was my first book is because it was my passion. Uh, from before I took my first class in seminary, I had graduated from college, had moved up to seminary, uh, was working at a warehouse loading uh, big semi trucks, uh, you know, uh, to make money to provide for seminary. And uh, by God's providence, got introduced to the top topic of the clarity of the gospel. And even though I had grown up in church and was saved as a young six-year-old boy, I never really knew there was that much controversy about it. And boy, did I go down the rabbit hole on that. And it became our driving passion that ultimately led us to start Not By Works Ministries based on Titus 3.5. It's not by works of righteousness, which we do, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And so this has been something I've been kind of, you know, passionate about uh, uh, for years. And so I've watched, I've seen it become, uh, you know, worse and worse. But I've also really enjoyed and, and, and you know, it thrills my heart when I see people who, like I was, haven't really thought about it, when they begin to look at the scriptures and the plain teaching of God's word. I mean, there are things the Bible is a little unclear about, right? How often should we take communion, you know, these types? Should you have church membership and those types of things? Uh, and we, we can base our beliefs on that based on principles, but it's not a thus saith the Lord type of thing. But if there's one thing the Bible is clear about, it's the gospel. You can take that to the bank, right? And so, uh, you know, what, what throws my heart is seeing people begin to study it and look at it and helping you know, by God's grace, be an influence in, in their lives. Uh, I have very little patience for people that are dogmatically preaching a false gospel, um, and I think we, they should be called out. And speaking of that, that's a good segue. So I'm, I'm at the point of uh, the presentation tonight where people are going to start sending me emails. In fact, I actually thought about putting a slide up with my email address in it, kind of like I do. A, I forget which volume it is, but in one of the books, Spirit of Antichrist books, I actually make a parenthetical comment. Look, let me save you some time. Right, right about now, you're ready to write me a nasty email. Let me just go ahead and give you my email, and you can, you know, you don't have to look it up. Uh, so, but I want you to take the names and personalities out of it and just evaluate objectively like a good Berean. So, uh, listen to what Billy Graham said in an interview with Robert Schuler back in 1997. He said, quote, God is calling people out of the world for his name, whether they come from the Muslim world, the Buddhist world, or the Christian world, or the non-believing world. They are members of the body of Christ because they've been called by God. Now, here's the troubling part. They may not even know the name of Jesus, 
But they know in their hearts that they need something they don't have, and they turn to the only light they have, and I think they're saved, and they're going to be with us in heaven. You say Allah, I say Yahweh. You say Buddha, I say Yahweh. As long as you respond to, you know, whoever your God is and you're sincere about it. And by the way, this is just one quote. I have the broader context in my book. Uh, you're going to be saved. And this is no different than what uh, Joel Osteen said. Now, this is from uh, 2005, June 20th. He made an appearance on the Larry King Show. Um, and uh, it's really interesting uh, when, what happened, I'm going to, you know, I've got that quote on the board, but I'm going to give you uh, the full context of this interview. So Larry King is asking him about the exclusivity of Christianity and of Christ. So King begins in the interview, not beginning the interview, but in this segment of the interview, he says, you know, we've had ministers on who said your record don't count. You either believe in Christ or you don't. And if you believe in Christ, you're going to heaven. And if you don't, you ain't. To which I would have responded, Amen. That's exactly what Jesus himself said. That's exactly what the Bible says. Osteen responded, yeah, I don't know. This is a direct quote. You can still find the uh, YouTube of this. King says, well, what if you're Jewish or Muslim and you don't accept Christ at all? Osteen, again, fumbling the ball. Well, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would and wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. He doesn't know. The preeminent evangelical Christian pastor of our day cannot articulate what it takes to be saved? Listen to the number of times he says, I don't know. King goes on, pressing him. If you believe you have to believe in Christ, then they're wrong, aren't they? And Osteen says, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. You know, from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. And then he goes, I spent a lot of time in India with my father, John Osteen. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. You know, For me, what the Bible teaches you know, is have a relationship with Jesus. But I don't know. These sincere uh, people in India, they're probably going to be in heaven. That's basically what he's saying. So eventually, Larry King abandons his attempts to coax Osteen into an espousing this exclusivist view. Uh, wouldn't have taken me more than one second. Um, and so he moves on, and Osteen probably thought he'd sort of dodged a bullet. The subject then goes on to why Osteen doesn't use the word sinners, and Osteen explains how he would never call someone a sinner. I talk about that in the book as well. But that's not germane to what we're talking about here. I mean, it kind of is in an ancillary way. But anyway, so he thought he probably got off the hook, but a caller calls in to the show and wasn't as ready to let Osteen off the hook. So the caller says, quote, thank you, Joel, for your positive messages and your book. I'm wondering, though, why you sidestepped Larry's earlier question about how we get to heaven. Me too, caller. Uh, the Bible clearly tells us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father is through him. And that's not really a message of condemnation, but of truth. And Osteen says, yes, I would agree with her. I believe that. So then King says, oh, so then a Jew is not going to heaven? And Osteen goes, oh, no, no, that, that's not what I'm saying. Here's my thing, Larry, is I can't really judge somebody. You know, only God can, can judge somebody. And I just don't, I don't know. I don't know. It's not my business, you know. I don't know. Well, it is your business. It is your business. King continued to press. But you believe your way, don't you, Joel? And Osteen says, I believe my way. I believe my way with all my heart. King, the natural follow-up. It's about the fourth time he's done this. 
Well, so someone who doesn't share it is wrong, isn't he? Well, yes. Well, I don't know if I look at it like that. I would present my way, but I'm just going to let God sort it out. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, about 15 times he said, I don't know. The king goes on, well, what about atheists? Osteen says, you know what? I'm going to let someone else, I'm going to let God be the judge of who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. God is the judge of who's going to heaven, and he's told us in his word who's going to heaven or hell. So Osteen and Billy Graham and others may have trouble articulating who will or who will not go to heaven. I don't have that problem. And it's not me. I'm just standing on the truth of God's word. What does God's word say? Now, I believe, and you've heard me talk about this if you've sat under our teaching here at Plum Creek, I don't believe we can judge whether someone's a Christian or not by their works. Never. You know, you'll hear people look at someone who claims to be a Christian and they're living a you know, debauched lifestyle and they say, oh, they can't possibly be a Christian. You'll never hear me say that. Because I know from God's word that believers can look like unbelievers. And we're not saved by works. And so I'm not going to validate or invalidate someone's eternal destiny based on their works. If I've got someone who is living a sinful life uh, and they claim to be a Christian, every single time, without fail, one of two things is always true. Every time. Either that person's a Christian or they're not. <laughs> because Christians can look like non-Christians. Christians can sin. Christians can quench the spirit. There's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's catering to the flesh. And it's not about time. God's word never says, now if you live like the devil for six months and three days and four hours, that next minute after that, boom, you're no longer a Christian. It never says that. It's not healthy. It's not normal. Christians who are living a sinful life are miserable. The spirit of God's convicting them even though they may not even admit it. Uh, there are all kinds of consequences for sin in the life of a believer. We talk about that extensively. My book, Freely by His Grace, has two whole chapters on that. So it's never a good thing for a Christian to live a sinful life. But we don't judge whether they're a Christian or not based on their works. But what I can do, based on the authority of God's Word, is based on their testimony, I can tell you whether they're a believer. And if someone says, I've never believed in Jesus, I've never trusted in him, I don't think he's my savior, I don't think I'm a sinner, I don't think I need a savior, I don't think he died for my sins, I don't think he rose from the dead, on the authority of Scripture, we can quite clearly conclude that person's not a believer. Because 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. So to me, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're Jewish or Hindu or Muslim or Klingon. You know, if you do not trust in Jesus Christ and him alone, you're not a Christian, period, full stop. And that's not me, that's God's word. And that's what the gospel used to be. But in these great last days of deception, the closer we get to the return of Christ, we're seeing uh, more and more examples of a sloppy gospel. So as I mentioned, I, I get into this in detail than getting the gospel wrong. Another book that came out uh, just about three years ago, right before my Spirit of the Antichrist books, was called Top 10 reasons some people go to hell, and the one reason people, no one ever has to. Uh, and in that book, I, I walk through, uh, in, in the introduction, uh, of course, unbelief is the one sin that sends everybody to hell. If you never believe the gospel, John 3, 18, if, if, if you believe in me, you're saved. If you're not, you're condemned already. Uh, but what would keep someone from not receiving the free gift of eternal life? And so, you know, I sketched out, a bunch of examples of things that I've learned in 35 years of ministry and reasons why excuses people give and so forth. And then I distilled them down into 10 categories. And I talk about 10 things that keep people from accepting the free gift of eternal life. Um, 
But see, the, the problem is a pretty simple one. Uh, the problem is we're all sinners, and therefore we can't get to heaven. What can we do to bridge that gap? What must we do to solve that problem? And religious pluralism that we've been talking about comes along and says, well, yeah, we, we recognize maybe you're sinful, but anything goes. It might be faith, it might be merit, it might be good works, it might be Islam, Judaism, Christianity, or any combination of the above, but as long as you do something, you'll get to heaven. That's pluralism. And the Bible doesn't teach that. Evangelical inclusivism is, is pluralism in disguise. It comes along and says, yeah, we believe man is sinful, and yeah, we believe Christ died and rose again uh, for the sins of mankind. But as long as you have faith in something, this is Billy Graham and Joel Osteen with India, you know, analogies, uh, you'll get to heaven. Uh, faith in Jesus Christ alone is not the only way. In fact, as we said, as, as the Billy Graham quote said, they've never even heard of Jesus, and yet they'll be in heaven. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, you know, you have to hear to believe, and how can they hear without a preacher? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So that's not what the Bible teaches either. Uh, there's always been a group out there that just teaches secular universalism, and it doesn't even start with sin because it thinks we all go to heaven. So there really isn't a problem to solve, uh, but that's not biblical either. What the Bible teaches is that every mankind is a sinner and that faith alone in Christ alone is the only means of remedying that. See, Christ died for the sins of the whole world, but the whole world doesn't go to heaven just because of that. You have to receive the free gift. Anyone, whosoever will, uh, may come, but it's not automatic. God doesn't force salvation on mankind any more than he forced Adam and Eve to eat the apple. He created us with free will. And uh, he said, watch out for that one tree. Don't eat of the fruit because it's going to kill you, and I love you, and I you know, I, I want to be with you. That's why I don't have a problem with that line in the song that we were talking about before. It's like, I, God does love us. He created us to have, in his image, to have fellowship. And when we became estranged because of our own sin, of our own free choice, then yeah, he, he, he brought heaven to earth to, you know, to make it right. But it's not forced on us. And so we have to make the decision. The Calvinists hate it when I say that, but I'm sorry, I'm not a Calvinist, uh, you know. You do get a choice. Of the 8 billion people on the world today, every single one of them could go to heaven if they simply trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So, you know, let's look at some scripture. Jesus said to, Nick, to uh, the disciples in the upper room, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, that sounds pretty exclusive, doesn't it? doesn't sound inclusive. It sounds exclusive. And Christianity, as at least biblical Christianity, is an exclusive religion. Uh, Paul said there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus told Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He goes on to say, He who believes in him is not condemned, as I quote, paraphrased a moment ago, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. He ends this chapter by saying, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So I've talked about this before, but you know, the wrath of God in Scripture is a very loaded term. It's a very important technical term. And in the eschaton, in the future, 
during the tribulation period, that seven-year period is called the great day of the Lord's wrath. That's when the wrath of God that's being stored up for all these years, and we wonder, you know, why is there so much injustice in the world? Why doesn't God even the score? Why doesn't he get revenge? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Well, that's when it's going to happen. The tribulation is the great equalizer. But you need to understand that believers are not under God's wrath. We're not a child of wrath. We're a child of God, John 1, 12. So believers cannot possibly be around when God's pouring his, you know, out his wrath on the earth. Now, there will be people getting saved during that time, and many of them will be martyred. But God's not going to allow the church, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 and 1 Thessalonians 5.9, to be here when that time comes, because we're not children of wrath. Jesus said in John 6, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. The moment you place your faith in Christ, you pass from death to life and shall never come into judgment. It's a one-time, you know, punctiliar moment in time. At that moment, one minute you're a child of wrath, you trust in Christ, the next minute you're a child of God, and that can never change. Your spiritual DNA can never change. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Alan's wearing a shirt that says this uh, on it. See, I brought my own visual aid, not just my PowerPoints, <laughs> but a 3D visual aid. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, and not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but what? According to his mercy, he saved us. We are justified freely by his grace, and, uh, but it has to be received, and the invitation is, let the spirit and bride say, come, let him who hears say, come. We talked about this Sunday, didn't we? Uh, and, and let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. There's absolutely no cost to the recipient of salvation. Zero. People struggle with that. Well, you got to do something. Don't I have to bring something to the table? I got to know what I'm getting into, don't I? No, no. You just got to know what you're getting out of. You got to know you're a sinner. That much is true. Absolutely. If you don't talk about sin, that's not the gospel. To be able to have good news, there's got to be bad news. And the bad news is you are sold under sin, and the penalty for that sin is eternal separation from a holy God. But it doesn't cost you anything. If it cost you something, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross for you. You could have just mustered up enough of whatever that cost is and done it on your own. But it's the fact that Jesus paid it all. Uh, that uh, means that we, we, we can't, there's nothing we can do. It's freely. The Bible, that's a biblical concept. Grace means free gift. That's what grace is all about. If, it, if it's not free, it's not grace. And if it's not grace, it's not free. So then number five, we've got about 15 minutes here. I really wanted to get through number six, but we'll see. I don't think I'm going to. Uh, number five, it's related to this obliteration of the gospel, but that is a failure to teach about hell. A failure to teach about hell. You know, uh, you'll hear postmodern, non-biblical preachers. They think they're biblical, but they're not. You know, um, Joel Osteen begins every message by, you know, this is my Bible. And then he ignores it, the rest of the message. But, um, uh, you know, there's an abject, you know, failure to teach about hell. In fact, you'll hear a lot of these teachers, as I was about to say, they'll say, uh, you know, salvation is not about fire insurance. How many of you have heard that? I bet more of you have heard it than you're really willing to admit. Um, uh, you know, they, they, this is that postmodern gospel. 
But that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what salvation is. As a young six-year-old boy, you know what you know convicted me that I really needed to give, uh, you know, uh, to to come to Christ and to receive the the free gift from Him, it was a message on hell. You know, I was uh, in a independent Baptist church. Actually, it was a Garb church, a General Association of Regular Baptist Church, and the pastor would would. Uh, some of you heard me tell the story that would, would frequently say things like, if you get hit by a bus on the way home tonight, are you prepared to meet your maker? And I grew up with a very morbid fear of buses, you know, for that reason. <laughs> but uh, it, it reminded me that I wasn't ready. And so as a young six-year-old boy, I recognized that I didn't want to burn in hell for all of eternity. And even me saying that right now doesn't sit well with some of you, I'm sure. And I'm sure it won't sit well with our uh, online audience because it's, you know, law, law of large numbers. Um, but uh, that's the testimony of Scripture. Uh, and I'm going to give you some, some references to back that up in a moment. But again, Jesus didn't come to earth just to give you meaning and purpose and contentment. He came to earth because, because of sin, you were not going to spend eternity in the presence of God in heaven. You were going to spend eternity where the devil and his angels are, which is the lake of fire, as Jesus calls it. And so... Uh, I make no bones about preaching about hell. I think it's, if you're not mentioning hell, you're not mentioning the gospel. Uh, and so many do, you know. So most gospel presentations go something like this. Are you feeling discouraged and lonely? Are you feeling lost? You just don't know your way in this world? Do you really need some direction and meaning and purpose? Well, come to Jesus and he will give you meaning and purpose. And then the organist plays, the music minister comes up, let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed, and people pour down the aisle looking for meaning and purpose in life. And they give their life to Jesus, which we talked about last time, I think, or recently I talked about, the Bible never says you give something to get saved. You get something to get saved. God's the giver, we're the receiver. Not one time, find me a verse that says, give your life to Jesus and you'll go to heaven. Give your heart to Jesus and you'll go to heaven. Give yourself to Jesus and you'll go to heaven. Never. God's the giver, we're the receiver, John 1, 12, to as many as received him. So anyway, that's what most gospel presentations are like. And they don't talk about sin, they don't talk about hell, they don't talk about why you need a Savior. That's the postmodern gospel. So here's a Time Magazine article uh, written by an alleged uh, you know, uh, evangelical in 2020, by the way, so not that long ago. But this guy says, what Jesus really said about heaven and hell, let me give you one quote. The vast majority of these people, those who believe in heaven and hell, assume that what, this is what Jesus himself taught. But that's not true. Neither Jesus nor the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, uh, that he interpreted, endorsed the view that departed souls go to paradise or everlasting faith. I mean, I just, I don't know what to say. I mean, I don't know where he got his theological credentials from a Cracker Jacks box or what. I mean, how can you read the Bible and make a statement like that? Uh, here's uh, another uh, Christian article, uh, 2015. Uh, did Jesus teach that non-Christians go to hell? And the author, Eric Jones, concludes no. Uh, well, will all non-Christians go to hell when they die? What happens to all people who die without knowing Jesus Christ? Will, would a loving God condemn them to hell? Absolutely not. God's doing everything he can to rescue you from hell. You condemned yourself to hell when you sinned. And for the wages of sin is death. 
the gift of God is eternal life, right? You know, this would be like saying, if I give you a brand new car as a free gift, then I'm condemning you because you didn't have a car. I'm not condemning anything. I'm giving you a gift, right? I'm helping you. Um, but yet that's the argument. And so you see mainstream bestsellers, people flock by the tens of thousands to their churches. They make millions of dollars on books. Rob Bell, for example, in his book, Love Wins, that uh, really the subtitle there is a, look, uh, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. And he concludes there is no hell. Uh, Leonard Sweet, I had the chance to share a platform with him one time and sat with him in the green room. Uh, he would never remember because he was too fixated on how many Facebook followers he had as we were sitting there. But, uh, uh, but I sure remember what he said. And he, you know, creates a clever, very, uh, you know, appealing gospel presentation using Starbucks as a model. Uh, here's Newsweek uh, going all the way back to 2009, the decline and fall of Christian America. Right on cue, two years later, time, whoops, time says, what if there's no hell? Again, this is all part of the agenda, and it's yet another sign of apostasy, and where is the church? Now, I don't want to sound like Elijah, you know, all, I alone am left, you know. There are a lot of God-fearing, uh, Bible-teaching men and women out there who are speaking up and speaking out, and we're, we're not alone, but we are the vast mi minority for sure. And uh, the average believer just, uh, you know, swallows this hook, line, uh, and sinker. So let's see what the Bible says. Uh, the book of Revelation says, Anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. Well, that doesn't sound very pleasant. <laughs> I thought love wins. Love wins, but it's not forced upon you. Forced love is no love at all. Coercion is not love. God doesn't drag you into salvation. He draws you through the Holy Spirit, convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, as Jesus said in the upper room. But the choice is yours. And if you reject that free gift, you know, then you, you have nobody to blame but yourself. I love this one. This is not something that you'll ever hear the Joel Osteens of the world preach about. Uh, and I say to you, this is Jesus speaking. I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear him who after he is killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Well, that doesn't sound very loving, right? So we've created a, a kinder, gentler Christ. And we love to preach all about his love, but we forget to preach about his righteous anger, his justice, you know, all of that. But he's both. That's what makes Calvary so amazing, is that the righteous uh, consequence of sin was met when Jesus shed his blood, the only perfect God-man, the only one who had room on his shoulders to pay for sin. I couldn't pay for yours. You can't pay for mine. We got our own sins to deal with. He had no sin, perfect, perfectly sinless. And so he paid that sin, satisfying the wrath of Almighty God. It's called propitiation. 1 John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not just for ours, but the sins of the whole world. He died for the sins of the whole world. So therefore, anybody, if you choose to cash the check, to use a metaphor, you could be saved. But if you don't cash the check that he's given you, you know, I, I can't help you, right? And uh, this, is the, this is, you know, the other side of the ministry 
of Christ. Uh, so again, this doesn't sound like someone who doesn't believe in hell, and certainly the Bible does teach it. Matthew 25, Jesus said uh, to the goats, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, how can you tell me that the Bible doesn't talk about hell? That's just a quick uh, summary. So we, um, I'm going to go ahead and stop there because there's no way I can get into my next one, which I really was hoping to. Uh, I mainly wanted to do this one because I want to do it live, and next week I'm on the road, so no in-person meeting next week and no live stream. I'm going to pre-record it and I'll post it Tuesday. So you'll have it, part 10, the next installment, uh, but it won't be live and it won't be live streamed. So I may shift my order around and save this one for when I get back because we're going to have some fun with this one in Romans 13 and some of those things. But anyway, any uh, questions? Uh, just to review, we tonight we talked about uh, the failure to teach about hell. Uh, we talked about uh, the fact that we're not preaching a clear gospel and, of course, moral relativism as the next three manifestations of apostasy. But any any comments or closing thoughts as we finish up? Yes? So do you believe um, reason that uh, people are writing books that way now and believing it, excuse me, because the majority of Christians just don't know their Bible? I mean, they kind of, they know it, but they don't really yeah. Anymore. I mean, a small speculator does, obviously. Right. We probably probably do. But um, so that kind of book stuff come out. They they look at it. Oh, that guy must know his Bible, so he must know his stuff, and I, they kind of somewhat believe it then because yeah. it's, kind of, it's easy to believe. Um, yeah. So the comment is, is the reason that you know these books are popular and that you know that people can get away with writing these books is that people don't know their Bible and they don't, they don't have the discernment, I'm paraphrasing, but uh, to be able to correctly identify. That's exactly what it is. In fact, one of the things that we're going to get to in this section, uh, let's see if I can get to it real quick, is uh, that I think is a sign of apostasy is a stunning lack of discernment. And so, and, and, and that's the re what you just said is the very reason that I started with uh, the issue of, uh, you know, not valuing the Word of God, or I forget what I called it, uh, a tax on the Word of God. So I think there are a lot of reasons that this, this mindset uh, has become so pervasive. Uh, so it's not any one thing, maybe. It's, it's a cumulative effect, but it relates to, you know, obviously the intentional takeover of the churches and the institutions that we've talked about over the last 120 years, the rise of higher criticism, the liberal modernist movement creeping into the seminaries. So then they put out more liberal you know, pastors who then influence their congregations. And it's just a matter of time before more. Yeah. What's that? Confusion. Yeah. Total confusion. And just people don't know their word. Uh, they don't know. Even if they read the Bible, they don't know how to correctly handle it. We did a series a couple of years ago here called how to read and understand the Bible. I taught hermeneutics for 12 years at the college and graduate levels. I love that subject. And uh, you can still find those videos at the Not By Works website if you're interested uh, on how to read and understand the Bible. So not correctly handling the Word of God, 2 Timothy 2.15. I think another influence is um, just the fact that uh, people, because of no discernment, they will absolutely you know, swallow anything. 
And, you know, these books, you know, it's, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. They're told, oh, this is a bestseller. You know, it's on the end cap of, of, the, of the aisle in the bookstore. Of course, we don't really have many bookstores anymore, so it's just it's a, it's a clickbait ad that pops up on your, you know, web page or whatever. And, and they think, oh, that looks good. You know, it's really clever, clever title, clever artwork, and they, they buy it. No discernment. I think I mentioned this before. I know I did recently, but you know, no one turns the books over and looks at who wrote them and where they went, where they go to school, what's their worldview, what's their theological framework. They just, oh, love wins. It's about heaven and hell. I'm interested in heaven and hell. I'll buy that. And then because he's a gifted writer, he's a gifted communicator, they buy it hook, line, and sinker. Um, I, I don't remember who said this, but I've, I've quoted it many, many times uh, through the years, I want to say it was someone like Warren Wearsby, but you know, just commenting about how little babies, toddlers, and once they get mobile and can crawl around, they'll put anything in their mouth. You know, they find a shoe, an old dried-up piece of macaroni and cheese, whatever it is, they'll find it and throw it in their mouth. And he said, "The church is one big giant nursery, full of people that'll put anything in their mouth." And we are—we're baby Christians. We have no discernment. Uh, in fact, Hebrews uh, actually makes a. Uh, this is actually. I'm glad that this popped into my mind because there's a connection between a lack of discernment and apostasy. And, and the writer of Hebrews was writing to Jewish believers that were seriously contemplating denying the faith and disassociating with Christianity. They were believers. There were serious consequences for doing that, but it wasn't a matter of heaven and hell. And listen to what he says in Hebrews 5.12. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, the ABCs of theology, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are mature, a full age. That is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil, Hebrews 5, 12 to 14. So, you know, I think if we can't recognize that someone out there telling you there's no hell is, you know, absurd and false, then how are we going to do battle when there's much more sophisticated lies and deceptions coming down the pike? You know, uh, that's the problem. So anyway, long answer, sorry, but somebody else. Anybody else? Yes. is in America and is it the same flavor around the globe because I mean America seems to be really focusing a lot on the prosperity part of mm -hmm. it and kind of the whole first world yeah. idea but what kind of apostasy, apostasy do we see so the question is how does this apostasy relate to other parts of the world so absolutely you know the church is global and the end times apostasy is global uh, but frankly, what's happened in most other parts of the world, especially the West, is w they are way ahead of us. They, they departed from the faith a century ago. Uh, remember, America is the one thing standing in the way of the Luciferians of ushering in the one world system. And so they vastly underestimated the power of God's people here in this country. And so it's going to be the last brick to fall. Um, so Europe, places, I mean, those churches are just just empty relics of a bygone era. People don't even really go to No, church no. Anymore. No. Now, 
let's be quick to add, obviously there are pockets of revival where the Spirit of God is alive and well. There are great men and women of the faith in all corners of the world serving the Lord, doing you know just what we believe we're doing, which is proclaiming the Word of God and standing on the Word of God. So I don't want to paint too gloomy of a picture, but as a you know nations, uh, there are virtually no nations where the entire nation is on fire for Jesus and preaching the gospel and standing firm on the Word of God. And it's quite the opposite in in the European world and you know either in Eastern Europe and places like that. They're all controlled agents just moving the ball forward. And that's why a lot of stuff, and Randy and I did our worldview, world events update today. Uh, that's why we talked about how, you know, the, the Russia-Ukraine thing, that's just a proxy war. Uh, there's, they're trying to suck America into a, to a conflict uh, as part of a multi-pronged attack to bring down this country. But, yeah, good point. Yeah, let's not forget that the church is global, and there's... You know, a remnant globally, and there's also a great apostasy globally. Yeah, someone over here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So at, at the point of rapture, can we say that everybody on the planet has you know, knows about Jesus? No. So great question. The question is, uh, at the time the rapture happens, will we be able to say that everybody on the planet will have heard about Jesus? No. And uh, people mistakenly think that because of what Jesus said in Matthew 24, uh, 14. When he said, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. But remember, the context here is the second coming. This is the whole Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24 and 25, is talking about the return of Christ to establish his kingdom. Remember, he goes on to say uh, uh, that uh, in, in verse, uh, let's see here, 24, uh, no, excuse me, 25, uh, when the Son of Man comes in all of his glory, verse 31, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on his throne. So he's talking here about that seven-year tribulation period uh, right before the second coming. And yes, by the time of the second coming, everyone on earth will have heard the gospel. That's the purpose of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And by the way, that's the purpose. I think it's in Revelation 15. I spoke about this last year or two years ago in Dallas at the pre-trib conference, but that everlasting angel uh, uh, that uh, goes throughout the earth and preaches the gospel. Maybe it was 14. Anyway, it's in 14 to 16 in there, but that angel, I believe that's happens right before the uh, the bold judgments right before the battle of Armageddon. And it's like anybody that the evangelists have not reached in the far corners of the world. At that point, God's going to send an angel to make sure everyone's heard the gospel. But remember, not hearing the gospel is no excuse. That's what Romans one is all about, that God has made himself known to all of mankind through general revelation. And if you respond to that general revelation, God will make sure you hear special revelation. So nobody can ever say, well, I never heard the gospel. They're not, they're, they're, there's no excuse. You know there's a God. You've seen the heavens declaring the glory of God. Your own providence, your own conscience tells you there's a God. The providence of God, the change, God is everywhere. You see it. You know there's a God. And if you'll respond to him, he'll make sure you understand the gospel. So, uh, but no, not everyone will have heard the gospel necessarily. Now they might have, right? There's no nothing that says that we might not have reached every corner of the world before the rapture, but it's not required. Biblically, we, the, the rapture could happen at any moment. Anybody else? 
How are we doing on time? We got time left. Of course, we don't have to use up all the time. <laughs> One last question. Anybody? All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, again, reminder, we'll send out an email. Make sure you're on our email list, both Not By Works and Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, but no meeting next Tuesday. Uh, I will record. Uh, I've already made arrangements uh, where we're staying to, to have a room to record it on Tuesday. And then I'll post it. It'll probably be posted early in the day. Uh, and we'll send out an email with a link to it. But if you just check our website under the videos tab under Prophecy Night, you'll see it sometime next week, uh, part 10. And uh, I'm going to shift some things around, focus on a few more examples of apostasy, and probably save the Romans 13 discussion for the following week. So, Okay, thank you guys. Uh, God bless, and we will see you next time.